Good morning. It certainly is a uh, pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, echoing what Walter said, uh, it is we, we want to welcome our visitors uh, here. We are glad that you chose to be with us this morning. Uh, we certainly thank you for that. We pray that you'll stick around for our Bible class immediately following uh, this service. We pray that you'll let us uh, get to know you as well. Those of you who are members here, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning as well. Those of you who know uh, this church and know me uh, know that I am not the preaching minister here at Netherwood. I am the youth minister. Uh, and this morning I have the opportunity and the privilege to share some of the experiences uh, from the youth, youth ministry's uh, mission trip to Houston, Texas this past summer. And you may ask why I wanted to share this with the congregation. And the answer is really simple. Um, I really feel very strongly that each one of you guys here partnered with us, whether you came with us or not. Many of you made uh, monetary donations, which made it possible for, for our kids to even go, uh, in a lot of ways, for us to be able to have the resources uh, to do what we were asked to do in Houston. But if you didn't make any donations monetarily, I believe you still partnered with us simply by being our brother or sister in Christ. Uh, we were an extension of this body here at Netherwood. And, and so I want to take this morning to share some of those experiences. I hope and pray that you'll be blessed by that. Uh, more importantly, I hope and pray that you'll be blessed by God's word. But please pray with me before we begin. Father, thank you so very much, Lord, for the richness of your word. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, you are an incredible God. Help us to have confidence in that. Help us to believe that. Father, in the times where our confidence is shaken, in the times where we are struggling with belief, uh, Lord, in the times where we are struggling with things that we cannot see, we pray that you would provide us your strength. Father, you pray that, we pray that you would instill within us your confidence as well. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together this morning to, to sing to you, to sing to each other. Father, to worship you to learn more about your word. Father, in this time, I pray that you would set me aside uh, so that your word would be communicated effectively, powerfully. And Father, that we would examine our hearts individually and also as a community of faith. Father, thank you again for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The name Caroline Nichols is probably unfamiliar to a majority of us in this room. Her face is probably the same as well. However, the name, face, and more importantly, the life of Caroline Nichols means a great deal to many people that I don't even know about. To the Impact Church of Christ in Houston, Texas, and to their surrounding community, Caroline, through the power and love of God, is a life changer and an image bearer for Jesus Christ. Caroline Nichols is the children's minister at Impact, and while her occupation may seem somewhat normal, her story is anything but normal and mainstream. I asked Caroline for permission to share some of her story, and she granted that permission, but was also kind enough to type out a few things that I'm going to share this morning. I want to encourage us to listen very closely, because her story is irregular. Many of us in here today may think her story is a little bit crazy or just something that someone else does, but never something that causes us to question what we are doing 
or how we're living out our faith. She says the following, I grew up going to church with my family very rarely. It wasn't until high school that I started going to church on a regular basis, and I became a Christian when I was in college. God has completely transformed my life in incredible and unimaginable ways. I feel extremely lucky to be able to get to work with amazing kids and people at Impact every day. I came to Impact with my Oklahoma State University campus ministry for several spring break mission trips, and I interned with Impact's VBS program for two summers in college. Impact truly stole my heart. And even after I graduated, I had a hard time staying away from the amazing people at Impact. I received my master's in accounting at Oklahoma State in May 2011 and even passed the CPA exam. Before interning at Impact, I had dreams to be a successful businesswoman, much like my parents. But God changed my dreams for the better. I began working at a large accounting firm, Ernst & Young, in September 2011 in Dallas. At this point, I was not looking forward. Actually, I was dreading it, my accounting career, but dreamed of working in ministry as I had at Impact and in college. The accounting career is what the world, my family, many of my friends, and even myself at times thought was the smart and logical life plan. But thankfully, God had other plans. In April 2012, I left the accounting firm and began working full-time at Impact as a children's minister. I did give up, she puts it, some security and money. Actually, she gave up a six-figure salary. But I gained so much more. I couldn't be happier with my decision to move to Houston and work at Impact. Even on crazy and rough days, I just remember, I could be auditing right now, and my day gets immensely better. I believe that Caroline Nichols is living a seven-sevenths life. Now, before you think I'm the one who came up with this concept, I stole this whole seven-sevenths concept from a young lady who was one of the student speakers at Rio Rancho's graduation just a few months ago. This young woman spoke of a seven-sevenths lifestyle in terms of one that embraced each moment of life with purpose, urgency, and wholeness. It's obviously something that has stuck with me. I believe that Caroline is living a seven-sevenths lifestyle because she is living what Jesus speaks of in John 10.10, where he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Do I believe that she's living a seven-sevenths lifestyle just because she left a six-figure salary to work in inner city Houston? The answer is no. These things are byproducts of her loving the Lord passionately, loving others passionately, and embracing each moment that she's provided with purpose and urgency. I believe that there's a part of all of us that enjoy stories like hers. But I also believe that we like to enjoy stories like hers from a distance because they make you and me very uncomfortable. Because we begin to think things like, are you saying that I have to do that in order to be right with God? Are you advocating that I give everything up and leave what I know in order to follow Jesus? To those that are already asking those questions, and I include myself at the top of the list, I would say the following. 
Not everyone's path is supposed to look like Caroline's when it comes to following Jesus. But I will say this as well. Living a seven-sevenths lifestyle for God, and I ta- I'm talking about really living, not just talking about really living and not even being in love with the concept of really living, a seven-sevenths lifestyle for God. It was never intended to be a life where I go for what I want, where I seek to avoid anything that is uncomfortable, where I have everything in a nice, neat package where most of my life is certain and known. Rather, living a seven-sevenths lifestyle for the Lord is a life in which a kingdom focus invades and permeates my entire life. It is a life in which I daily experience the cost of following Jesus, and these costs make me uncomfortable. Many times they lead to places that I never thought I would go. They lead to times that are uncertain and unknown. It is a life in which I better routinely buckle up for the greatest adventures that I can ever imagine. Consider the following. God has created you and me, every single person in this room, all of humanity, to live nothing less than full and abundant lives. Consider also living a seven-sevenths life isn't about working harder. But living a seven-sevenths life is all about allowing God's fantastic sufficiency to flow through every part of who I am. Our text for this morning is Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. And I really love this text because we're able to see a man in Ezra who led people to seven-sevenths lifestyles as a result of living one himself. He left them a legacy of what that looked like. And I believe by God's providence, he leaves us a legacy of what, as well of what living that type of life looks like. Read with me, starting in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. Verse 8. And Ezra came up to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The nation of Israel certainly had many dark times, and that's an understatement. But Ezra lived in an incredible, exciting, and adventurous time in the history of the nation of Israel, particularly in their relationship with God. Ezra lived in an exciting time because the nation of Israel had been released from their captivity under the Babylonians. Not only were they released, but they were also released to go back home. To go back home and rebuild their previously destroyed dwelling. About 50,000 Jews initially go up and begin to rebuild the temple. And that in large part 
is what the book of Haggai is about. Fast forward 50 years after that, and this is where we find Ezra and his emerging role in the story of God. There is a new king of Persia, and his name is Artaxerxes. And he makes one of the most critical decisions that a pagan king can make in favor of men and women of God. We'll talk about the why of his decision in a couple of minutes. The critical decision that Artaxerxes made was to send Ezra back to the people at Jerusalem to teach them about the law of God. Now, a lot of times when we come to Scripture, we overlook things, and it's easy to do that. But listen to this. Ezra was a priest. This was his primary responsibility, and he was well qualified to do this. Why didn't a pagan king send a military official, nobility, royalty? But he sent a priest, and a priest to teach his people about God's laws. The easy answer of why Artaxerxes did this is God. And of course I believe that God is behind all of it, but there's something to this that I believe it's easy for us to miss. The Jews had lived among the Babylonians for quite some time. Some of the most popular stories for us that occurred during that time time period are stories like Daniel and the lion's den, Esther. We usually talk about these individuals and individuals like them as being heroes to their own people. But I want us to consider for a moment, what if they became influential to the people around them, to the pagans? What if it was that Artaxerxes sent Ezra the priest to teach a people in Jerusalem because he had been exposed to those people's faith for quite a while, because his father before him had been exposed to those people's faith? I don't think that's a stretch. In fact, I believe God's word supports that. I think it brings up some questions for you and me. Questions like, what non-Christian is speaking about our faith? What non-Christian is being impacted in deeply powerful ways that are most certainly from God's work in us? Each of us have a sphere of influence. In other words, multiple contexts in which God has placed you in the life of another person, and he's placed that person in your life. And you have influence and impact. And it's not just he's placed you together to be best friends and that's it, although that's important. You have a sphere of influence to proclaim the message of Jesus, to proclaim Jesus' love. My sphere of influence begins with my wife, Sunshine, and our son, Chaos. And parents, listen to this. I know too many kids whose parents don't take seriously that their child or children are their primary sphere of influence. Even as I was preparing for this, I thought, I should ask Chaos a couple of questions, but I thought, ooh, I don't know if I want to know the answers. Parents who are present physically, but so distant spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. There are kids that are here at Netherwood like that, in our own community of faith. I have other spheres of influence as well, my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Netherwood, 
the students who are in my master's program at UNM, the student athletes that I work with at UNM, my volleyball players and their families, the students that I teach at UNM. And the beauty of it all is that every single person in this room has multiple spheres of influence that are radically different from each other, that God has designed with purpose. Don't ignore your sphere of influence. I believe that when we do this, we don't have the heart of God in loving others like he does. And I also believe that we ignore the call of God to love others like he does. The youth ministry was blessed to spend a week at Impact Church of Christ. And let me tell you that these individuals at this church are very much aware of their spheres of influence. They know that the hundreds of kids that they work with every summer and throughout the year are connected to families. And that many of these families are in need of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual healing. And they're intentional about trying to meet all of those needs. Don't underestimate your impact and influence over the people that God has placed in your sphere of influence. I had the opportunity to speak at camp a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that I stated was this. We shouldn't expect a lost world to possess saved attributes. But I have to tell you that I oftentimes get irritated with Christians Again, myself at the top of the list because I think we do that. I'll give you an example. There's a song that's currently number 12 on the top 100 of Billboard music. The name of the song is Same Love by the rapper Macklemore. And although there's a lot to the song, the rapper is endorsing some of the recent changes to the laws regarding same-sex marriage. While also talking about a lot of hatred that homosexuals experience. The chorus of the song sung by a lesbian, goes like this. I can't change, even if I tried, even if I wanted to. My love, she keeps me warm. Folks, this is what people believe about themselves. And I know what our Lord says about homosexuality, and I agree. But I guess I would ask us, since when have petitions replaced loving and teaching people the message of Jesus. We just assume that they aren't willing. And what is really scandalous to believe, think, or say is maybe those individuals have a thing or two or three to teach me what it, lo- what it means to love people the way that God loves them. We shouldn't expect a lost world to possess saved characteristics. So rather than lamenting this, signing petitions, or posting things on Facebook, maybe it's time where people who don't underestimate the impact that God has in and through us when we follow his lead. Rejoice that you have a sphere of influence. I think a lot of times we just simply don't have a kingdom focus. Be grateful that God desires to work through you to impact lives for his kingdom. Be engaged and present in every moment that the Lord provides. Well, the youth group was in Houston. We didn't get a whole lot of sleep. And that makes it really difficult as the days pass by to be fully, fully engaged and fully present in people's lives. But I'm proud of our kids and our adults because they did it. 
One of the many reasons that I love going to Houston is because our kids and adults see this principle at work. Loving people is work, and it's messy. As a result, we oftentimes want to make excuses about why we don't do it. Well, I can't make decisions for another person, so it's really not my fault. I wonder why we state the obvious, acting as if God ever called us to make decisions for other people. The reality of the situation is that although I don't make decisions for people, you and I are responsible for people's souls. Folks, that's a biblical concept. If you don't believe you're personally responsible for another soul and have the mentality that it's not your fault, that it's too hard, that it's too messy, then I would encourage you to get to know the creator of the universe and tell him that. I would encourage you to read passages like Ezekiel 3, 17 through 21, Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Matthew 18, 15 through 18, Galatians 6, 1 through 2, and the list goes on and on. This journey that Ezra and the people that he was leading had ahead of them back to Jerusalem, it was going to be tough. It was going to be intensive because of the terrain, because of the circumstances. It was about 500 miles from Babylonia to Jerusalem, or Babylon to Jerusalem. But traveling with many people and circumstances and terrain, it's going to make it a 900 to 1,000 mile trip. And picture this. Picture dealing with all of this in the midst of nations that are going to war because it's springtime and that's what they do. And as if this wasn't enough, the people that are traveling with Ezra are not these fantastically skilled warriors. They're not experienced in battle. Look at this company, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants. My first question is, God, are you being serious? We're supposed to make this trip with these type of individuals. And many times along our journeys with God, we say or think something along these lines. There's no way that I can do what you're asking. I think God would say to us, no kidding, you passed the first test. Now move out of the way. And let me do the work in and through you that I promised that I can do. I sat with the elders at the Impact Church on a Wednesday afternoon of our week there. All of the elders, if possible, take the Wednesday afternoon, all of the six weeks, to meet with the group leaders. First, first year that we went there, I thought we had done something wrong. But we go into this room, and they, they ask questions like this. How, how's your congregation doing? What's going on with your church? What can we be praying for? What do we need to improve here? This year, I asked them what they could use from us. One youth minister asked about their finances. And one of the elders, with directness, said, usually we're pretty good. He said, every September and October, things are pretty tight. And we don't know how we're going to pay for our lights. But God comes through every single time. And we believe with all of our hearts that this work matters to God. And that he wants us to do it. And he proves that year after year. God isn't nearly as concerned with our capabilities or lack thereof on our journeys. What matters is who he's created us to be and who we are inside of Jesus Christ. This journey should have taken Ezra and his company well over a year. And yet as you read the text, we find out 
Took them four months. Four months. I really do believe that we would be more effective as a community of faith if we simply believe that God can and will do what seems like impossible through us when we listen to his voice and respond in obedience. The text lets us know why the journey was so short as well as so successful. We read that God's hand was upon him. God's hand was upon him because God's word was in him. And it wasn't just a mastery of topics. Ezra understood that the law wasn't just full of concepts to be understood or to be mastered. And I think in the churches of Christ, and I feel like I can say this because I've been in them for 32 years. We have a good reputation for this, but I often wonder about our reputation for living out what we claim to know so well. God desires that we see that his word points to and reveals that he is the almighty God to be worshipped and obeyed. And this obedience is also the reason why God's hand was upon him. There are many times when we confuse the heart and hand of God. Chris Seedman, a minister in Dallas, describes it this way. God's heart is always for me, but, that, but this doesn't mean that his hand is always on me. Brothers and sisters, this is some fantastic news. Think of how a good, earthly, nurturing father cares for his children and seeks to act in their best interest. Also understanding that at times, acting in their best interest means correcting, admonishing, encouraging. Magnify this many times over in how our Heavenly Father feels and acts towards us. A couple of weeks ago, and yes, I did ask him uh, for permission to share this, so don't chastise me after this. But a couple of weeks ago, Denton Carmen and I were talking, and he said the following. Perhaps I turned my back on God for so long that it only seemed like God was turning his back on me. And I love what he said. Because I think he's in the process, and God's guiding him through the process of really getting it when it comes to the difference between God's heart always being for him and yet his hand not always being on him. God has designed us as human beings in a way that our decisions matter because he's provided us significance. Our lives matter. Ezra left a legacy of what a seven-sevenths life looked like for the people that he was leading. In fact, I'm going to submit to you, he wouldn't have been able to lead in the way that he did without that. To me, Ezra 7.10 is not only the crux of the entire passage, but it's the crux of Ezra's life. There's a significance to the order that we see. And the reason there's a significance is because it demonstrates how individual transformation occurs in a person's life. It's from the inside out, not the outside in. When we talk about God's hand being upon Ezra because God's word was in him, we need to understand ingestion and digestion are not the same thing when it comes to God's word. The text says that Ezra had devoted himself to the study of the law, and of course he knew it, and folks, this is a first step. We have too many people today that operate based off how they feel and what they think is best, and none of us in here are immune from falling into that trap if we haven't taken time to investigate God's word. 
But I believe Ezra was an individual who wrestled with God's word. He just didn't read it, but he allowed it to read him as well. The next thing that we see in verse 10 is what I call the so what factor. You and I see what's in God's word, but the major question is so what? What am I supposed to do with this in 2013? What's next? What are we going to do about it? We need to do a better job of understanding that practicing the things in God's word a lot of times produce a better understanding of God's word. And you may say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. And I would ask, ask you to consider the following question. Who understands the greater weight of temptation? The one who continually resists it or the one who constantly gives in? Doing what God's word says produces a better understanding a lot of times. Wisdom is not just knowing the right thing to do. It's applying the knowledge and doing it. After being in a continual process of doing both of these things, Ezra is able to lead the people to places that he's not only been, but that he's also continuing to go. How can you share what you don't do? Our immediate answer is you can't. And to some degree, I agree with this, but I also believe God's word says you can, but it's empty and hollow. Brennan Manning says too many leaders are like travel agents passing out brochures to places that they've never been. If I name the name of Jesus and claim him as my Lord and master, I'm a leader. That's the reality of the situation. It's not ministers, elders, and deacons who are the only leaders in this congregation. Christians are leaders. And coming from a minister, we need to stop relying on people who just have titles and understand all of us are leaders. A 7 7 lifestyle is a journey of transformation. I believe that Caroline Nichols is leading the full and abundant life that Jesus speaks of. But I also believe she's a woman who doesn't have it all together. Just like you and me don't. The beauty of this is that God has created you and me to live the highest quality of life that will ever be known to man. But he also supplies us with everything that we need to do this. Are there going to be bumps? Yes, and pretty bad ones. Are we going to falter? Absolutely, and in pretty big ways. But this life is not about my performance. This life is about allowing the sufficiency of Christ to flow through me. Every Sunday, we usually stand and sing at the end of the lesson. I'm going to ask the guys that I have um, asked to pass out a couple things to move to the back. Every Sunday, we usually stand and sing at the end of the lesson. We're still going to sing, but I'm going to ask us to remain seated this morning. These guys that are moving back there are going to pass out the cards. Every single person needs one, and I hope there are enough. This morning as we sing, I'm going to ask each of us to reflect on the fact that a seven-sevenths life is a journey. I do understand that all of our lives should be given fully to the Lord. But the reality of the situation also is that we're human beings and there are always areas of our lives that can be more fully given over to the Lord. So this morning as we sing these words, oh how marvelous, 
Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I want us to write down on the card one thing. If you're like me, you could think of many things. But one thing that you need to submit to God's love. And listen to that. Not one thing you need to do better. But one thing that you need to submit to God's love that's going to allow you to better live a seven-sevenths life for him. And while you're singing this song, reflect on this one thing. But more importantly, I think it's important to ask for God's help to be able to release this one thing and to put it in his hands.